Hello, you're listening to Perspectives by the Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm your host, Chris Clegg, Managing Editor and Global Editorial Lead on Trade and Globalization with the Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm joined today by three guests to discuss the latest results of the Global Business Barometer Survey. The latest results show a slight uptick in sentiment across the globe, specifically in two or three countries and two specific sectors, healthcare and financial services. Today, I'm joined by Timur Beg, Chief Economist at DBS, the Singaporean bank, Alex Kwiatkowski, Principal Consultant with SAS's Global Banking Practice, and finally, my colleague in Singapore, Jesse Quigley-Jones, who's a Managing Healthcare Editor with the Economist Intelligence Unit in Asia. This episode of the Global Business Barometer was made possible with the support of SAS, a global provider of data and analytics software and services that help turn data into intelligence. Timor, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. As I mentioned in the introduction, we have just released the third edition of the Global Business Barometer. And as you're based in Singapore, and Singapore is a sort of bellwether for the global economy and especially for global trade, the sentiment did pick up in Singapore. It remains negative between the May and June surveys, but it did pick up. What's your view on the Singaporean economy at the moment? What sort of shape of recovery are you expecting at DBS? We are in that Nike swoosh camp, uh, Chris. Uh, glad to be on your show. The way we had to lock things down, not just in Singapore, but in most countries in the world, it was unsurprising to see double-digit sequential decline in growth in the second quarter. And it's also been unsurprising to see as the lockdowns have eased for retail sales, uh, restaurant traffic, uh, to come back to some extent, if you will. But we are nowhere remotely close to normal, and hence we will remain in negative territory. But the first derivative, the rate of change, will turn positive uh, through the months of June, July, and perhaps even August. But one general observation is that you first see a bit of a jump. Everybody is sort of excited to finally go meet friends and family. They want to go out to eat. But then the reality sort of sets in. The chronic uncertainty with respect to jobs, the uncertainty with respect to the pandemic, bad news coming from the rest of the world. So those things have had a fairly quick, sobering impact on the pace with which we are normalizing. So countries that began to ease lockdown in May saw good numbers in May and June, but already in the month of July, the numbers have turned disappointing. And by that, I am referring to the U.S., to China, and even to Singapore. So we're stepping into August sort of underwhelmed and a bit worried about the outlook, and and hence that sort of a swoosh, a very sharp drop, and a rather anemic, flattish recovery is what we're working with right now. Obviously, there's the domestic aspect of the Singaporean economy, but Singapore is also a massive, if not the most massive transshipment hub in the world. And as I said a moment ago, is a bellwether for, for global trade flow. So what are you seeing there in the numbers that have been coming out over the past couple of months? Great question. And I think the uh, Baltic dry freight index is a very good indicator of how Singapore's ports have been faring over the last few months. It, it collapsed to unprecedented low levels in February, March. And then as sort of China began to open up, From late March, April onward, we began to see Singapore's ports getting a little busy. The sort of commodity that we used to sort of transship through the region 
uh, is is not nowhere close to back to normal, but it's picked up. But here's the rub. Just like the earlier point I made about domestic consumers feeling a bit optimistic a couple of months after the easing of the lockdown and then begin to fade, unfortunately, we have seen the same thing with trade. Uh, we had a nice pickup in June, May, June. July has been disappointing and Baltic dry freight has begun to retrace again. So, you know, some degree of normalization as China is good news, but the rest of the world is so far from normal, putting it all together. It's a very underwhelming pickup. It is the first economy of the 14 main economies that we survey for the Global Business Barometer that registered a positive outlook for their own domestic economy over the next three months. Now, we surveyed not only executives from, from Chinese firms, but executives with MNCs who have operations based in China. What's your view on the Chinese economy from Singapore? I mean, obviously, Singapore is highly dependent on trade coming out of China for, for all the reasons we just spoke about. So what's your view on the Chinese economy from Singapore? So China is supposed to be the first in and first out in this crisis that we have. And for a better part of the second quarter, it was panning out pretty nicely. So when we looked at domestic indicators in China with respect to subway traffic and financial intermediation and people's uh, footfall in restaurants, things look pretty good. Uh, and we haven't had, other than a few sporadic cases, any major resurgence in China the way we have seen in the United States, for example. Uh, hence, China remains on the right track. Consumers are still a bit uncertain. They are a bit worried about the outlook, but they're certainly in a much better place than their counterparts in the industrial world, for example. And when we look at activity in China, you can look at what the state-owned refineries are doing. They're back at like 80-85% capacity with respect to refining activity. When you look at purchasing managers index, companies just like your survey are demonstrating some degree of pickup and confidence. So relative to where we were, things are much better. But relative to where we were before the pandemic, we are nowhere close to normalizing. So how quickly we close the gap in China is going to be very critical for ASEAN, for example, because ASEAN is trading so heavily with China. So in that regard, like I would bring your attention to one piece of statistic. The machinery and electronics imports that China carries out from ASEAN uh, had a massive jump in uh, April-May, but then it's fallen quite sharply since then. And since China's import of machinery and electronics are the proxies for the real supply chain and how finished products are being prepared so that they can go from China to the rest of the world, it's a bit of a worry. So I reiterate my point that my Q3 outlook is getting a bit clouded because I'm seeing some degree of loosening of momentum in China, and that probably is not fully in line with some of the PMI numbers as well as the survey numbers that you are looking at. Sure. So if Singapore is going to be a swoosh, is China also going to be a swoosh or is it going to be a different, the recovery in China is going to have a slightly different shape? Singapore is way more trade dependent than China, so I'd like to hope that China's swoosh is a little better than Singapore's swoosh. Otherwise, Singapore really in big trouble. Yeah. And look, at the end of the day, the trust with the medical system and the monetary fiscal authorities in China remain very, very high. And hence, the risk of people at the ground level losing confidence in a very big way and hunkering down is relatively less in China than many other parts of the world. So I would like to think that China's swoosh is a little better. Right. So it might be something closer to a U than, than 
an elongated tail on the swoosh. Sure. So you mentioned ASEAN, and I wanted to branch out a little bit into the broader region. What's your outlook for the recovery in the ASEAN region and really Asia as a whole? Obviously, a lot of things are tied to what's happening in China, but you know it varies by country and the size of the domestic economy. So what's your outlook for the rest of Asia? Chris, ASEAN is a real mixed bag. I mean, if, when you look at North Asia, there are some bright spots. Uh, Taiwan is you know, coming back, almost back to 100% of where they were. And they're certainly a big winner out of the trade war. And even in the pandemic, they've stood very, very firmly and done very well. Uh, South Korea, I think, is also not in a very bad shape. But within ASEAN, it's a real mixed bag because we have terrible infection uh, outbreak in countries like Philippines and Indonesia. Absolutely no sign of the curves flattening or infection coming under control. And then you have the likes of Vietnam, which looked uh, pretty good for a very long time. But in recent weeks, we have seen the five-day cumulative number of cases go over 100, which is a bit of a worry. But even, you know, if you think about a country like Hong Kong, where daily cases were down to basically zero in early June, now five-day sum is uh, over 600. So there are sources of worry within ASEAN, uh, particularly in Indonesia and Philippines. And even the ones like Thailand, which looked pretty good even a few weeks ago, uh, there are some headaches popping up. And mind you, all of this is taking place at a time when tourism is virtually banned. So the early outbreak that we saw, which was related to what is known as the imported cases, that's not the source of infection outbreak right now. It's domestic spread, virus remaining dormant, asymptomatic carrier, spreading it to other asymptomatic carriers and so on. So this is this is worrisome. Yeah, so that, that was going to be my next question on the tourism issue for countries in, in Asia and specifically in ASEAN. You know, the tourism accounts for, what, 9, 10, 11% of global GDP. In some ASEAN countries, the percentage of GDP generated by tourism must be much higher than that. What options are available to them to make up what's going to be at least a shortfall for the next 6 to 12 months and might be even longer than that? Unfortunately, Chris, there are no good answers to that question whatsoever. So for these countries that we are talking about now, 2020 is a wash. Large parts of 2021 will probably be a wash. But even for that to happen, as opposed to a complete crisis or depression, these countries would need help. They are not privileged by the uh, reserve currency status of industrial economies. But there is a limited wherewithal to borrow from external markets to make up for this loss of demand and then support livelihood. Hence, we're looking at 6 7% decline in GDP from Thailand to Philippines to Indonesia and so on this year. I mean, Indonesia is a little less than that, more like minus two. But these are countries that are not used to seeing negative growth rates at all. And now between the tourism collapse and weakness in trade, things are pretty bad. And there simply isn't enough domestic wherewithal to make up for that demand. So these countries are not in as bad a shape as they, their counterparts in Africa or South America. So I'm not expecting a full-on financial crisis or that there'll be major need for debt relief. But there certainly would be need for some degree of financing, be it bilateral support from China or Japan or some multilateral support from the IMF World Bank, I think would be critical for these countries to sort of course through this pandemic over the next couple of years. Okay. So we've been talking about Asia mostly. What's the view from Asia, from Singapore on Europe and the U.S. or North America? The North American results from our barometer survey 
place the region as the most pessimistic among the five major regions in the U.S., the most pessimistic among the 14 key economies that we survey. And obviously, the news has been coming out of, out of the U.S. with spiking cases, not a lot of unified response there. When you look at what's happening in the U.S. and in Europe from Asia, how does that affect your outlook for the region and for Singapore? So on the U.S., initially, we thought that the heroic fiscal and monetary response from the government and the Federal Reserve was going to tide the U.S. over relatively okay through the second and third quarter. So optics would be bad in terms of spikes in unemployment and massive decline in GDP. But as far as livelihoods, purchasing capacity is concerned, it won't be that bad. But now with all these back and forth on the extension of various support measures up in limbo, we worry about the durability of uh, the demand rebound that we saw in the U.S. in the last couple of months. So, you know, when you look at unemployment insurance claims, it's been hovering around at, you know, very high numbers, something in the range of, you know, 30 to 34 million all the way through July. That's worrisome. The amount of money people are drawing from unemployment insurance is very large, but it actually collapsed in the coming weeks if a deal is not established. And that, again, could have a very negative impact on consumer demand in the U.S., which by extension means export demand out of Asia. So that's a big source of worry. And so my hope is that, you know, the U.S. politicians get serious and get something done ASAP. Europe, look, you talk to people, anecdotal evidence is that, you know, travel has picked up within the region. My friends in Germany are vacationing in Greece. Uh, friends in France have gone to Italy. So there are, you know, sporadic pickup in cases in Spain and so on. But from a public health pandemic management perspective, they seem to be doing better than the U.S. And they have also had a major breakthrough in terms of fiscal support for the region. The big recovery plan that was formalized by the EU last week, 1.8 trillion euro worth of fiscal measures over the next few years, which in our view is one of the best things that has happened to Europe in a long time. So both from a medium term and a short term perspective, after a long, long time, we are beginning to get a bit comfortable about the outlook for Europe. For the U.S., medium term, we will never rule the U.S. out, but the near term does not look good at all. Okay, so going out one sort of step further and your outlook for the global economy, obviously all of these countries and regions we've been talking about are constituent parts of the global economy, but I'm wondering what you or what DBS thinks the the shape of the global economic recovery is going to look like both on its own and perhaps compared to the last crisis, which was a mere 10 years ago at this point, are we going to see a swoosh in general overall, or is it going to be dragged down by the likes of the U.S. and and other regions? The way I'm thinking about the outlook from a global perspective is that it is going to affect the poor population in each given economies and poor countries in the global community of nations disproportionately. So just like I was pointing out earlier that within ASEAN, there are countries with very little wherewithal to deal with the protracted period of lockdown. I think that's an argument that can be made general for the whole world. So I'm not going to worry too much about the US or Europe or even China for that matter, or Singapore, Japan, Korea, because these countries, even if they have not spectacular success in dealing with the pandemic, they have the pocket to deal with this. So my worry is sort of shifting toward Latin America, Africa, poor countries in South Asia and so on, where pandemic management is actually of secondary importance 
Because whether or not you manage the pandemic doesn't really matter if your livelihood is completely being disrupted by this crisis. Uh, in fact, you know, many emerging market economies, even before they saw infection rates pick up, they saw capital outflows and huge dislocation in markets because nervousness was percolating through the Western markets and the contagion was hitting Asia. And by that, I mean financial contagion. So we are looking at a couple of years of um, major uh, loss in output in large parts of the developing world, need for debt relief, need for debt restructuring at a time when multilateralism is on the back foot, when there is no major leadership in the world to deal with this once in a lifetime crisis. This is what worries us, the, the lack of coordinated response in contrast to the massive needs that are out there that are going unmet. So it's a bit of a grim outlook for real economy and people's livelihoods. As far as the markets are concerned, as you very well know, they are completely oblivious, drugged by the massive injection of liquidity, and asset prices are, of course, fully disconnected from what's happening at the ground. So the emerging markets or the developing countries, whatever label you'd like to use to discuss them, were facing a host of problems even before the, the COVID pandemic, from issues with debt to trying to move up the value chain to trade more. But in the face of all of the trade wars that were going on between China and the U.S. and the U.S. and other countries, how many years or how long do you think that this pandemic has set back their efforts to grow their economies? Chris, you're right that the problems that exist in the global macroeconomic landscape were not dormant and were sort of just came to life three months ago. They've been around and they have been uh, hampering growth and outlook for a long time. Let's take global trade, for example. We think of global trade taking a backseat in conjunction with the trade war. But the fact of the matter is global trade has been in a backseat for more than a decade. Ever since the last global financial crisis, we've been in a far flatter trajectory of globalization, trade wars, and the pandemic has perhaps accentuated that trend, but the trend was pretty dismal even before that which also meant for aspiring economies that want to grow, be the next ASEAN country or be the next China, Japan, through the export orientation ladder, uh, we're not being able to climb that ladder. And that prospect is going to be dimmed even further by what's happening right now. So that's issue one. Now, one could argue that it could be mitigated to some extent by the technological breakthroughs that we're seeing around the world. And perhaps there is this big productivity-enhanced growth explosion uh, just around the corner because of artificial intelligence and better connectivity and so on. But we've been waiting for that for a while. I'm not really seeing that. So I'm not in that camp of being hopeful because tech will bail us out. So my view is that at the end of the day, the true and tested model for growth remains trade. The fact that we are shying away from trade is a very bad omen for aspiring economies of the world which want to grow through trade. Yeah, I think one last question on that point before I let you go, Tamar, is you mentioned the latter, the, you know, the Asian economic growth model, Japan, South Korea, the Asian tiger, Singapore, Hong Kong, more recently China to a certain degree in a slightly different way. Do you think that latter has been kicked away for a lot of these emerging economies even before the pandemic occurred? I think Vietnam is a good case in point that tells you that there is still hope. Vietnam has emerged as a major manufacturing and exporting powerhouse during the 10 years that I was just describing where global trade trends have been dismal. So as China becomes more expensive, at the low end of the production spectrum, the manufacturing moves to places like Vietnam, which offers high-quality labor force, fairly decent infrastructure, 
and hence it becomes a bit of a China-like. Now, nobody in the world can match China in terms of economies of scale, in terms of high-quality production and extremely competitive cost. But Vietnam shows that if you do want to take some business from China, which the Chinese were not keen on holding on anyway, there is hope. So if tomorrow an Indonesia or a Thailand were to offer interesting deals to Chinese manufacturers who for cost reasons or geopolitical reasons, something that we're not going to get into, but we all know what Akiva, want to move some things out of China, there will be eager recipients of that capital. So from that perspective, I would not entirely rule it out. I also feel that while you know we've had setbacks in global trade environment, regional trade initiatives are still very much alive and countries are trying to focus their region supply chain in, in a more seamless, frictionless manner. And if they can do that, well, they probably will still be able to eke out some extent of the fruits from globalization, not hyper-globalization that we saw in the past. Maybe that needed correcting anyway, but partial globalization is still better than no globalization whatsoever. Right. Well, it's always good to end on a semi-positive note. I don't know if I'd call that wholly positive, but a semi-positive note. So, Timer, thank you for your time today uh, and joining us on the EIU Prospectus podcast. My pleasure, Chris. So now I'm joined by Alex Kivkowski from SAS, and we're going to talk about the financial services sector and the outlook there for recovery. In my conversation with Timor from DBS, we talked about how China was the first country to tip over into a positive outlook for their, the domestic economy. Well, healthcare in the industry section has tipped over into a positive outlook. And financial services registered a somewhat unique score of 0.0, which means that look is flat. The financial services industry executives have a flat outlook in aggregate for the next three months. In the current environment, that essentially amounts to optimism. So Alex, I wanted to start by asking what you think contributes to this relative optimism in the financial services sector at least compared to some of the other sectors that we look at, like manufacturing and, and others. Yeah, so hi, Chris, and, and thank you for the opportunity just to share some thoughts. This really shows how viewing financial services through a single lens is dangerous. Uh, I think we have to look at all of the sort of um, contributing parts that make up the, the financial services sector, because it really is a rather mixed picture. So whilst there is profitability in some areas, and I'll come to those in a moment, I think it would be unwise to say that financial services overall is in rude health and is having a good bounce back from where it's found itself these past few months. So let me qualify or quantify some of these things in just a a little more detail. So if I look at some of the performance in, in banking, and obviously, banking itself has many different attributes to it. There's retail, there's there's corporate, there's business banking. Is that we know that the macroeconomic buttons that have been pushed and the levers that have been pulled by central banks have left banking in a in a tricky spot, given its you know, historically low interest rates. That means that actually the search for profitability in banking, an industry that lives and breathes on net interest income, net interest margin, it's really hard because trying to find profitability in an era of historically low interest rates that were low pre-pandemic and are even lower during the pandemic means that you know, trying to, to pursue profitability for, for banking is you know, understandably challenging. Now, obviously, there are parts of 
financial services that are seeming to buck that that trend a little bit. So if you look across some of the financial results that various firms have turned in during Q2, now there are others in the financial services industry who are able to be weathering the storm a little better. So if we shift away from banking, take a peek at insurance for a moment, we've seen that there have been some of the, the big insurance groups of the world have actually reported solid Q2 profitability. Maybe that's because of improved uh, results in particular segments like life and health, for example. But you compare and contrast that with some of the big banking groups who are hemorrhaging profitability, recording enormous losses because of concerns over credit contagion, the need to make extra provisions as part of their regulatory requirements. And again, it comes back to saying that there may be profitability somewhere in financial services, but it's not everywhere. So I think whilst there is some just cause for some, I'm not sure optimism is the right word, perhaps sort of breathing space of, okay, it's not quite as bad as we thought it was going to be. It's still bad in some parts of financial services. And whilst you've got this massive contrast where you've got one of the big banking groups reporting the record losses, on the other hand, you've got another big banking group or financial services group, someone like, you know, I'm thinking of Goldman here, you know, reporting you know, record Q2 numbers. A couple of questions to follow up there. You said that there are substantial or large differentials between the performance in Q2 for some of the banks. I mean, what differentiates the banks that have performed well from the banks that have performed poorly? Is it type of business that they focus on? Were they more prepared than some of their competitors for this sort of pandemic to the extent that anybody was prepared for anything on this scale? What differentiates those that are seeing, I don't know, success is probably not the right way to put it, but less pain than, than the others? I think that preparedness has been key. The obvious thing, and, and I just don't want to, to hang everything on digitalization, mm. but there is certainly an element that says those that digitalized early, and I don't mean those that digitalized early in the pandemic, but those that had digitalized in the prior years. And I'm going back, you know, three, five years here. So we're you know, looking back historically as to what the future looked like, you know, in the mid 2010s to say, what do you need to put in place? So I think there was preparedness in some, has certainly helped. I I can't say it's all down to digital, but I think digital contributes as an enabler to being able to do business smarter, faster, and at a more cost-effective manner. I think some of it's down to just some of the industry segments that firms have have chosen to concentrate on. Now, I, I mentioned insurance briefly, and it, this maybe ties back to digital, is that it was significant that you had this in the, the early you know, first sort of two, three months of the pandemic, you actually had insurers writing more business. So there was a notable uptick in online sales because they had done their digitalized transformation. They offered customers the ability to, you know, to make you know, transactions and interactions easily online. And that resulted in, in an uplift of, of new business. So I think it comes down to the segments that you've concentrated on, how effectively you can put that into practice. You know, of course, in a heavily regulated industry that you know, we've spent as a as a financial services community the last 10, 12 years putting in place mechanisms that prevent another 2008 style meltdown from happening. I think it also raises an interesting question as to whether were we preparing for the same problem and therefore avoid that problem from re-emerging and perhaps 
did we not pay enough attention to what the next problem could conceivably be, which is why perhaps some firms in banking, asset management, insurance, perhaps took a, a different view that to think rather than let's try to avoid the replication of subprime and all of that toxicity that was in the market and all of the, the shaking of confidence that that had, all of the other attendant problems that that then shone a light on around behaviors and technologies that weren't capable of supporting the businesses and the work that they were doing, all those all those interesting things. Maybe some of the firms that have weathered the storm a little better right now were those that were thinking there might be another you know, once in a century occurrence. Perhaps it doesn't look like what we've seen his, you know, previously in recent history. Perhaps we need to assume that it's going to look like something very different. And therefore, let's not overextend ourselves in, in certain areas. Let's make sure that with okay, regulatory requirements being as they are for uh, things like you know, common equity capital, to make sure that you know, we are well insulated you know, to, to face the fiercest ravages of a storm, which perhaps none of us quite knew which direction it was going to blow in from. Would it blow in from the east, the west, or somewhere else, and what it was going to do? So I think preparedness and uh, perhaps an element, uh, I think, of, of foresight as to you know, where best to concentrate resources. That brings up an interesting point that we made in the paper that's published alongside the survey results, and that is when we offered respondents, executives across the globe, across countries and industries, a slate of non-barometer questions that were about how their response would would come or what shape their response would take to create more resilience in the post-COVID environment. And as you rightly point out, many of the executives chose digitization or digitalization as one of the most important tools. And that's especially true for financial services where digital agility came in at 58%, meaning that 58% of respondents in that industry selected it as being the most important tool for resilience. Further down came planning for business continuity and strategic planning. So I'm wondering, in the financial services industry, do you think that uh, there's a kind of growing feeling that digital will just save us and that planning and business continuity assurances are too far down the list where they should be higher up? That's a really interesting way to look at it because everyone i think is seeing digital as some sort of lifeboat which is if we jump into this we will be and again i'd like my storm metaphors so if we jump into this digital lifeboat we'll be able to you know avoid the worst ravages of the storm and then when calmer waters lie ahead you know we can then emerge unscathed and life can continue yes to some extent but not the sole extent i'm naturally risk averse i think many those in, around banking, as I was and, and still am, and those that you know, occupy kind of this type of position in, in, in the industry will always try to sort of head for risk averseness. So it's like, well, what else can we do to make sure that, again, that that storm doesn't hurt us? And, and digital is m- most definitely one thing, but also in that lifeboat, if I can carry on with my, my sort of simile on, 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 on that. And it's that I think we found that business continuity plans were, to many parts of financial services, were perhaps found wanting mm-hmm. a little bit because everybody thought and, and I know the, the banks that I've advised and those that I've worked for directly and indirectly the, the idea of having you know, a warm site that everyone would just decamp to in order to carry on and, you know, and preserve operational integrity all of a sudden that goes out of the window and so you're suddenly looking at how you're going to preserve operations in a distributed work from home environment 
that also has, and maybe now is not the time to get into it, but we should never forget about it. We should also remember there are some tax implications and some other sort of more very mundane factors about when you suddenly place a large portion of your employee base working from home, perhaps permanently, what does that then do to a a financial services taxation requirements? And I'm not a taxation specialist, but I've read up on a few things that make me realise that this is not just quick. Let's just have a distributed workforce accessing everything digitally. That will make all of our problems go away. It will not. Strategically, of course, you place digital as an enabler at the heart of your strategy, but digital is just a set of technologies. And I think history has shown us that it's very unwise just to put all of our faith in technology and forgetting about the actual design of what it's supposed to do. A good technology is only as good as the technology is being used to enable or to to accomplish. And technology is wonderful, let's be honest. It, It can do some incredible things. The art of the possible But it has to be, in this case, what's the art of the real, what's the art of the necessary, rather than just being seduced by this idea of digital and going, it's okay, everybody, we've digitalized. And that always makes me think back, and and I'm old enough to remember the early, mid-1990s, when firms in financial services, and in fact, across the whole spectrum of different businesses, were seduced by other snappy technologies or nice little acronyms. Remember, Chris, when everyone talked about CRM Mm. as if somehow it was this magic wand of, don't worry, I'll just use a CRM system. Don't worry, I've got CRM. You know, customer relationship management, it just meant the ability to understand what it is your customers, who they are, what they want, how you should serve them. And yet so many firms, financial services and others have struggled to do that. So don't just jump into a digital lifeboat and think that that's all one needs to do. I think it's a combination. It's always a combination of having a clear, short, medium, long-term set of ambitions to recognize one's own fallibilities, which means that from a financial services perspective is that there needs to be some thinking around digital, which doesn't just mean digitalizing the parts of the bank or the insurer, the asset manager that the customer can see, that's that, you know, we're out in the ocean now, we're in our lifeboat, and we're in cold oceans, we could be in the southern ocean where you get icebergs bobbing around. Yep. You know, you can only see that one fifth of the iceberg that you can see above the surface. That's the bit the customer sees when they're dealing with a financial firm. But there are three fifths of the iceberg beneath the surface. That's the middle office. That's the back office. And that says to me, in a world of digital, those back office and middle office functions are still horribly analog. How do you think, maybe pick two or three areas, how is the financial services industry going to look different on the other side of COVID, assuming we get to the other side, as we all hope we do? I don't think there'll be as many players in financial services in the future as there are today. I think we're going to see both the falling by the wayside of some of the new entrants that have made a big splash in recent years. I don't think they're all going to make it. I'm already seeing clear signs that some of the fintechs that have been really seen as a a unicorn, a bright shining light, that they're already talking about how their business model is unsustainable if these current conditions continue. I think we may also see some perhaps consolidation some M&A activity as a result of firms thinking that it's better together uh, to try to get through this. And maybe some will have to uh, run up the for sale sign 
because quite simply they cannot continue in their current guise because of the effects that the pandemic is is going to have on them. We will see undoubtedly more digital when it comes to customer interaction and transaction. Of course, I'm going to mention that we're going to have a world that's got more analytic capabilities in it, because that's the part that I look at around artificial intelligence, advanced analytics, the ability to have you know hindsight, foresight, insight, I think will help. Financial services has an absolutely pivotal role to play. And we're there to support that we, the broader we, we're there to support national governments in their programs to avoid financial hardship. Financial services will be there to help the the economies restart and get moving again. I'm afraid it will, however, look a little different in the financial services world to how it looks right now, because I think that every industry is going to be reprofiled by this, perhaps some more so than others. If we look at aviation, if we look at tourism and the hospitality sector, will financial services have as rough a ride? No, it will not. Will it have a ride that means that some bits get sheared off along the way that have to be reprofiled, that has to be replaced or changed? I think inevitably the answer is yes. And once again, thanks, Alex, for joining us for this episode of the podcast. Thank you, Chris. A pleasure. And finally, for this edition of the Asia Perspective podcast, I'm joined by my colleague, Jesse Quigley-Jones, Managing Healthcare Editor in Asia, to talk about the results from the latest global business barometer with a focus specifically on the healthcare sector. So thank you for joining us today, Jesse. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. The healthcare sector was the first sector of the six main ones that we survey, was the first one to register any sort of positive barometer reading for the three-month outlook for profitability. It came in at just over zero, which is neutral, at plus two. What do you think explains the relative optimism, still subdued, but the relative optimism among executives in the sector? Well, I suppose broadly, when we're looking at recession situations, healthcare is one of the most resilient parts of the economy. So there may be a background level of confidence in health services and uh, recognition maybe that there's always going to be demand. Uh, people are always going to be sick. There's a, a huge amount of non-communicable diseases and long-term care that needs to be provided. So if we see the way that the healthcare systems have responded to the COVID-19 pandemic, we're actually looking at a sort of a dip in service uptake over the last few months where people have maybe avoided going to hospitals. They've not been following up on their treatments or their screening for some conditions like cancer and cardiovascular diseases. That is all expected to pick back up as we get COVID under control and as we get back to a more sort of normal situation. So we may be seeing um, a bit of confidence among our executives in the healthcare sector that, you know, services are going to come back up. People are going to start accessing services. There's going to be increased spending and in particular spending from out-of-pocket payments from patients directly. So perhaps we're seeing the start of that uptick and we probably expect that to continue for the next six months to a year. And when you say that people are avoiding going in for regular checkups and screenings. Is that mainly because they don't want to be in doctor's offices or hospitals right now for fear of contracting the virus? That's certainly one of the big issues that occurred um, across across the world, really. But you know, when we looked at what was happening in Asia Pacific, where, where I'm based, there was a fear among patients about attending a hospital setting or attending a doctor's clinic for fear of you know, being exposed to COVID-19 and contracting the virus. So there was a massive aspect of a change in health-seeking behaviors among people. We saw that you know, people were not showing up for routine cancer screenings. There was a big gap in Hong Kong, for example, where people who experienced a heart attack or stroke 
were delaying going to see emergency medicine care. So they were delaying by sort of up to an hour or several days in the case of a heart attack. And you could expect really bad outcomes in these situations. There's a time critical window where patients have to present to receive treatment for something as critical as a stroke. Right. So there was definitely some early data that showed some issues there. But the other big issue here was health systems had to reprioritize their services. So they were putting a lot more manpower, a lot more resources into the COVID response at the expense of some of those non-critical or non-time critical health services. So there was a probably a mixture of those two aspects there. Well, that's interesting. And I suppose in the long run, rather unfortunate. Do you think that we're going to see once, if and when we do come out of the pandemic, once there is a vaccine and it's manufactured and widely distributed, is there going to be a lag of sort of second order effects and illnesses that maybe not spike, but increase because of people avoiding regular health checks during this time? It's certainly a concern, particularly when we've been talking to some of our colleagues who work in cancer care. There was a concern that came out of Australia about maybe a mini tsunami of cases of cancer based on the fact that people had avoided those situations or they hadn't been able to see their regular screening services in place. So there's definitely a concern across across the world, I think. Right. There's data coming out of the UK and Europe now that has a similar idea. You know, people have been delaying treatment. All those patients are eventually going to have to come into the health system. And the concern is that they can come back in at a later stage of disease. And the options, of course, are not as good from a, from a medical perspective. So there, there is definitely a concern across many different therapy areas around the impact of this on, uh, on some of the longer term conditions. You mentioned that there are there are changes in the sector. We've discussed a couple of the the short term ones. Some of these changes could or will prove temporary because eventually there will be a vaccine. We hope will be soon. Other changes, not only in the healthcare sector across all sectors, are going to be a little bit more permanent. What do you see as being the most significant long term changes to healthcare as a result of of, of COVID nineteen? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think one of the things that will stick is probably around the use of digital health technology and mm -hmm. things like remote doctor-patient interactions. So we've seen examples from Singapore, again, in cardiovascular disease, where they managed to move all of their cardiac rehabilitation services to virtual engagements. And this actually was something where the technology existed. It's not complicated. It could be as simple as a phone call or a text message or you know a, a FaceTime chat or something like that. But it really made people more accepting to use these technologies. And there's almost been a proof of concept in the last couple of months that these things can work well. And they're not sort of compromising on that level of service and the level of care that's provided. So I think a lot of these things will stick. We've almost been forced to prove that we can deal with this. I mean, we know from, from our business lives that you know, we never thought we'd have so many video chats and uh, virtual events and all these kind of things that seemed impossible six months ago and now so part of our daily life, we don't even question them. So we're going to see a similar thing in healthcare. Right. And I think part of that is also around patients and the general population's uptake of these and acceptance of it and, and maybe overcoming some of the concerns they had around things like health data, where it's stored, where it goes. Those are all issues that still need to be clarified and solved in many cases. But people see the benefit now. They see that these things can work and make their lives easier and fit better in their daily life, in their work life, in their other responsibilities. So we will really see some of these aspects around for the long term. Okay, well, one last question. Considering you are the managing healthcare editor in Asia for, for the EIU, I guess I can't let you go without asking 
what your outlook is for vaccine development and how you view this uh, as someone who presumably keeps on top of the issues and the developments that have been happening in this area. Um, you know, there have been claims that we could have a vaccine ready by the end of the year. Others, such as Bill Gates, said maybe by the middle of next year. How do you see this unfolding over the next six to 12 to 18 months? Well, I think it changes day by day based on who you speak to. Uh, I take more of a pessimistic view, maybe, that it's going to be maybe another year before we see a real candidate vaccine that's manufactured to the quality and to the volume that we need, you know, the number of doses produced. We actually did a very interesting webinar with some of the folks who are developing these vaccines last week and who were explaining to us around uh, the technology that's used and how it has been able to shorten these timelines from vaccine um, identification through to development. We've seen amazing advances in the last couple of weeks with data from the Oxford UK vaccine group, as well as data out of China that have been published showing that we do have good candidate vaccines in the pipeline. So I think, you know, watch watch the news, keep an eye out. Uh, we're looking for big announcements around uh, larger scale studies for these vaccines, the phase three studies that look at broader populations and really work out whether they are having the effect that we want them to have. We'll have to be looking out for data on the immunology, so whether they offer protection in the short, medium or long term, uh, which will kind of influence how often we need to take this. You know, is it going to be a vaccine that we consume like the flu vaccine where we have a different one every year? Or will it be a, a one-off shot that will protect us in the long term? All these questions need to be defined. So there's a huge amount of work to be done, but there's a large amount of you know, smarter people than you and I working on this. So I am optimistic that within the next 12 to 18 months, there should be some sort of vaccine or probably many different candidate vaccines on the market um, and available for protecting those who need it. All right. Well, we can wrap up there on a little bit of a cheering note. And thank you, Jesse, for joining us again on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Okay, and that's it for this episode of Perspectives by the Economist Intelligence Unit. The full barometer results can be found at globalbusinessbarometer.economist.com. And as always, if you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode of Perspectives. Thank you for listening again. Goodbye. Goodbye.